Good morning. This is Psalm 45, verses 1 through 17. For the director of music, to the tune of lilies, of the sons of Korah, a maskal, a wedding song. My heart overflows with a pleasant theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All the glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Bart and, and Joy, uh, for that, for the prayers and reading of the word. Um, before we start, would you bow your head in prayer with me? So, Father, uh, we come to this psalm. Uh, it's not, for most of us, a familiar psalm, and we are struggling to understand why we are reading this psalm two weeks before Christmas. And your Holy Spirit can show us, and so I call upon your Holy Spirit to do just that, to teach us so that we might learn to the end that we might love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Christ's name, amen. So, <laughs> when Brian gave me this psalm and said, I'd like for you to preach this psalm two weeks before Christmas, I read it, and I'm going like, what the heck does this psalm have to do with Christmas? And, uh, you know, we've learned uh, from the superscription that Joy read that the psalm is a love song. It is a wedding song. 
But it's more than that. It's a song for a royal wedding. Not an ordinary wedding, but a royal wedding. And in Psalm 45, we find the combination of two great themes from the Bible, kingship and marriage. I don't know about you, but I I find it somewhat interesting. You know, we've given up the whole monarchy thing, but how often when there's a royal wedding do people just can't wait to tune in to see everything that takes place? I remember, I don't want to tell on myself, but in 2011, when Prince William married Kate Middleton, it drew huge crowds, huge. There were, and, and the TV audience was somewhere between 26 and 37 million people. And they tuned in to watch the couple say their I do's. People watched to see what Prince William would be wearing, his military and royal finery. But I think most people tuned in to watch and see the bride walk the aisle, flowing in white in all her radiance. And they wanted to see the look on the king's face when he saw his bride for the first time walking the aisle towards him in all her beauty. And of course, we want to see what celebrities are going to be there, right? Is, is Sir Elton going to be on hand? What, what will he be wearing? Um, will Lord McCartney be there? How about David Beckham and Posh Spice? <laughs> you know, wedding, weddings, royal weddings have always been special occasions, and this particular psalm is no exception. The Old Testament scholars speculate that Psalm 45 was written on the occasion of King Solomon's wedding, his marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh. And it's true that this psalm found its most immediate application in the wedding of ancient kings. But it points beyond itself to a king much greater than Solomon. Theologians have always understood that Psalm 45 was a messianic psalm. It contains a cryptic prophecy that points beyond itself to a coming Messiah, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the anointed one, or in the Greek, the Christ. And you see that the psalm breaks down into basically two parts. The first part deals with the king, The second part deals with the bride. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to ask, who is this king, and why has he come, and who is the bride, and what makes her beautiful? The psalmist describes the king as majestic yet humble, gracious yet terrifying, But the descriptive descriptive language of the psalm goes to extremes, shocking extremes, when in verse 6 he says this, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. 
Who is this king of glory? The author of the book of Hebrews tells us that it is Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate king, infinitely high, yet a humble servant. Beginning in Hebrew chapter 1, verse 3, it says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And then in verse 8, the author of Hebrews says this, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews connects the dots, telling us that the puzzle pieces of the royal messianic prophecy come together in Jesus Christ, the ultimate king, whose throne will last forever and ever. And as the psalmist said, all nations will praise you forever and ever. So with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, we look back and, and we can see what the psalmist only saw dimly. Yet when he's born, why was Jesus not immediately recognized as the ultimate king? The psalmist hints that the king will not be like other kings born in palace fortresses. Indeed, it would be hard to be born in more humble circumstances. Jesus was born to an unwed, unwed teenage mother in a manger, not exactly the kind of birth we would expect for the king of kings. Now, earlier this year, I traveled with a group to Israel, and one day we went to a place that was like the manger that Jesus could have been born in. And I want you to know, it was not only dirty, it was filthy. It was disgusting. No child of royal lineage would ever have been born in that kind of place. We here in the States have some sort of a, Christ, a Hallmark card version or vision of what that night must have been like. We have, you know, uh, the, the mood lighting and the cozy manger with the animals blissfully looking on. Let me tell you, it was nothing, nothing like that. It was not the place any king would choose to be born unless it was the place that a king chose to be born. You see, this king was humble in every way including the circumstances of his birth. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Philippians 2 when he says, in your relationships to one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to hold on to. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
what does that mean? <laughs> well, I found that Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard helped to explain it in a story that he told of a great king who fell in love with a beautiful maiden. And unfortunately, she was a peasant. And the king's advisors, advisors voiced concerns about the class division their union might represent. How could true love exist between unequals? The king could elevate the maiden to his own status, but she might come to love the lavish gift more than the man who gave it. The king could reveal his majestic kingly splendor, but this might evoke fearful admiration rather than genuine affection. The king realized that the union could not be brought about by her elevation. It must be attempted by his descent. He shed his royal robes and donned the tattered clothing of a peasant. Kierkegaard said, this is the love God showed us by putting on the tattered clothing of our humanity. Humble and weak, powerful yet majestic, only by his descent, only because he came in both human and divine form could he fulfill his divine mission. But you know, even in his humility, there were glimpses, there were hints of his royalty. Do you remember the wise men, the magi? They had traveled a great distance from the east, and they come directly to King Herod, and they ask him this, where is the one, where is the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And the night Jesus was born, the angel of the Lord appeared to the lowest of the low, shepherds abiding their flocks by night. And he said to him, they said to, he said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you this day is born a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and you shall find the babe lying in a manger. And of course, at his trial, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus, the king above every king, chose to be born behind enemy lines on a military mission, a mission motivated by love. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And what was lost? His bride. His bride was lost. The Bible gives us a lot of metaphors to describe and help us to understand our relationship to God. It says, we are like sheep, and he is our shepherd. We are like children, and he is a loving father who provides for us. He is our great king, our ruler, and our protector, and we are citizens of his kingdom. But you and I will never understand and grasp the deep, intimate relationship 
that God wants to have with you and with me until you see him as your bridegroom, as your husband. We don't spend a lot of time speaking of our relationship to God as that between a bridegroom and his bride. But this is a theme that is found commonly in many of the Old Testament prophets. In Isaiah 62, the prophet says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so the Lord your God will rejoice over you. Again, in Isaiah, the prophet speaks tenderly to God's people, and he says, do not be afraid. Do not fear disgrace. Why? For your maker is your husband. Do you remember what, when Jesus was asked by the religious leaders of his day, how come your disciples don't fast and everybody else does? And Jesus says to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast when they are with the bridegroom? Jesus was saying to them, as he says to you and I today, I am the bridegroom, and I've come to lay down my life for my bride. In that day, everyone knew that the bridegroom of Israel was the Lord God Almighty, and Jesus said, I am that bridegroom. So who is the bride that Christ comes for? Well, oddly enough, it's you and me. It's the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, the bride of Christ is the church. And he relates it this way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her blameless and holy. Paul, Paul goes on to compare the relationship with Christ as the union between a husband and wife. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery, he says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul says, on the last day, Christ will present the church to himself as a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. And the psalmist says, on that day, our king will be enthralled by our beauty. But let's be clear. He does not love us because we are beautiful. We become beautiful because of his sacrificial love for us. We can learn something about how this psalm connects to the Christmas story from Dorothy Sayers. Sayers was one of the first women to graduate from the University of Oxford. And beginning in the 1920s, she wrote a series of very popular novels. And the hero of her, hero of her novels was a fellow by the name of Lord Peter Whimsey. 
And he was an eccentric, aristocratic sleuth who solved various crimes, mysterious crimes. And about halfway through her whimsy detective series, a woman shows up. The name of Sarah's new character is Harriet Vane. Like Sayers herself, Harriet was also a very successful mystery writer and one of the very first women to graduate from Oxford. Harriet and Peter fall in love. Until that point, Whimsy was an unhappy bachelor. And then Harriet shows up and her love starts to heal his broken soul. What had Sayers done? She looked at her chief character, Lord Peter. She saw he needs something, someone to help him. He was lonely. He was unhappy. He needed something to come into his life and to fill out his life and to heal it. So she wrote herself in. Sayers looked into the world she created and loved her chief character. So she wrote herself into the story as Harriet Vane to heal the broken bachelor with her love. And in time, Lord Peter and Harriet were married. And you say, well, that's a pretty interesting story, but... You know, it's a heartwarming story, but what does it have to do with the Christmas story? According to Tim Keller, God creates the world, and we've turned away from him, and we're screwing up our lives royally, and we're unhappy. And God looks into this world, and he loves us, and he writes himself in. I mean, he really writes himself in. He writes himself into the story in the person of Jesus Christ who comes and begins to heal us by his love. And in time, Christ will return to take us to be his bride. So Christmas is when we remember and celebrate the day that God chose to write himself into his own story. At Christmas, we first, it is, the, it is the first coming where we learn of his mission to seek and save his bride. And yes, we are betrothed. It's, it's like being engaged. In those days, betrothal meant being marked, uh, it marked the beginning of the covenantal relationship, a point at which the bride belonged to the bridegroom. A point at which both bridegroom and bride looked forward to the consummation and union of their relationship. Nowhere better than the book of Revelation is this described, this, this relationship described by the Apostle John who is in the Spirit and is given a vision of what that wedding is going to look like and listen to what he says. Let us rejoice, says the angel. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
fine linen, bright and clean, have been given her to wear. On that day, on that day, the bride of Christ, you and I, will be clothed in the finest white linen. As the scripture says, we will be clothed in garments of salvation and arrayed in a robe of his righteousness. Our beauty will be complete and the king will be enthralled by it. And then will the bridegroom and the bride's joy be everlasting. And then it will be true, as the angel said, blessed are they who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And who are those? If you're in Christ this morning, you're going to be there, and it's going to be spectacular. Yes, we are already engaged, and but we've not yet experienced the fullness that we long for. And we wait. And I don't know about you, but it seems like it's particularly hard at Christmas time to wait. It seems like it's hard to wait in a fallen world. Have you ever felt like Christmas is a time that's mixed with joy and sadness? Joy that the king has come but sadness that we still are called to live out our days in a fallen world. Why is that, that there is this sadness? Well, I know for many, we're sad because we remember somebody that we love that's no longer with us. We're sad because there are broken relationships in our family and among our friends. We're, we are dealing with some of us loneliness or depression or others are suffering some, from some painful physical, emotional, or financial trial. As we live out our days in this fallen world, our hearts long for the day they will be united with Christ, for the wedding supper of the Lamb. <clears throat> and why is it that this is what we have to look forward to for the rest of our lives? Why is it that our lives are full of so much trouble? Do you remember what the angel told the shepherds, he said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. So it's for everyone. For unto you is born a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And some will say, A Savior? A Savior from what? A Savior from what? You see, Christmas in the end is all about news. Bad news and good news. The bad news is, you and I are sinners. We need a savior. The good news is, at Christmas, we remember the day our king lovingly wrote himself into our story. While we wait, I'm reminded of something that I'm grateful for, which is that the scepter of justice is the scepter of our king. And I don't know about you, but justice terrifies me. It terrifies me. But the justice of this king is no longer against us 
It is for us. You see, our sin had created a debt, and justice requires that all debts be fully paid. God's justice helps us to understand why he does not forgive sin. God forgives sinners. The great debt must still be paid. The cross reminds us who paid our debt and what it cost him. The manger reminds us of the day that our Savior lovingly wrote himself into our story. You see, the true meaning of Christmas always involves the crib and the cross. And this is a king that comes not only to us in justice, but he is rich in mercy and grace. And he beckons to all who are here and any who have never come before, no matter who you are, no matter where you've gone, no matter what you have done, you come to me. You will find mercy and rest for your souls. As the scripture says, if we are but faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. At the cross, the justice we deserved fell upon him so that the blessings he deserved could come upon us. The punishment that brought us peace with God, as the prophet said, was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. This Christmas, if you, any of you find yourself wondering, has the bridegroom forgotten me? Does he remember me? Does he know about me? Does he even care? Hear the words from the prophet Isaiah as true when they were spoken as they are today. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, yet I will never forget you. Why not? He says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. So as we prepare to leave and go out into the world, let us remember our great king and what he showed us and what he requires of us as citizens of his kingdom. We are to act justly. We are to love mercy. And we are to walk humbly with our God. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Father, as we examine our hearts, we find that we have, we have made room in our hearts for so many different things. So many different things. I wonder, is there any room in our hearts for you 
this year. Is there any room in our hearts for you today? Search our hearts, Lord, and show us that we might return from our waywardness and going astray and following after other lovers and that we might return to the true bridegroom of our souls. And we ask you to do this in the name of Jesus and for his sake, amen.